18F is an organization that is building the 21st century digital government. In order to build online government services that have the high quality of modern cloud applications, 18F built cloud.gov, a platform as a service that can be used to stand up web applications for divisions of the U.S. government. Aiden Feldman helped build cloud.gov, and on today's episode, he dissects its architecture. Cloud.gov is built on Cloud Foundry, which sits on top of a special version of Amazon Web Services built specifically for the U.S. government. We also explore how application development works at 18F and how 18F has built a culture that reflects an ideal mix of public service and fast-moving innovation. Aiden Feldman is a developer with 18F, an organization that is building the 21st century digital government. Aiden, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Jeff, thanks for having me. What is 18F? So 18F is a uh, digital development shop in the General Services Administration. So we're essentially doing development work, design work, uh, consulting type engagements, uh, and other kinds of things within the federal government for various agencies. And we had a previous episode about 18F with Sarah Allen, where we briefly discussed the organization, but I do want to talk about it in some detail with you. How does the ethos and the internal atmosphere of 18F compare to that of like a startup or a big company? Yeah, it's interesting. We operate a lot like a startup in the sense that we have a lot of freedom to kind of control our destiny uh, in the sense of how we want to be structured, the kinds of projects we want to take on, et cetera. Um, and really, we do operate like a business in the sense that we are cost recoverable. So we don't have a line item in the congressional budget. We do all of our work for pay from the agencies we work with, even though we are government agents, uh, you know, government employees ourselves. So... Yeah, and that was the internal contractor model. Exactly. But, you know, there is, uh, I think, a big difference in terms of, you know, we're not only working for profit or we're not, you know, trying to maximize profit even. You know, we're trying to be cost recoverable. That's um, that's the sort of like financial goal. But really, we're there to, you know, improve how government does IT. Uh, Speaking of that, when 18F got started, what was the state of application development and and software infrastructure in the federal government? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think if you've ever used a government website, you can sort of imagine. Um, but, you know, despite how large the, the United States government is, there's surprisingly few people with design or, you know, technology experience working in the government. So, you know, there's, there are certain areas where that's, that's not true. You know, in, in intelligence, there are certainly a lot of, um, a lot of very, very smart technical folks. Um, and then like certain little groups uh, scattered across agencies, but there's not a lot of expertise in house. And so it ends up being a lot of, um, you know, people who are running, running various, you know, programs through agencies, having to rely on vendors for expertise, which is so, great. Yeah. It, it, it sounds like there was not a systematic way of architecting and creating and deploying software applications prior to around the time 18F got started. Right. So there's nothing centralized. You know, the, the U.S. government is very 
federated and very siloed, you know, in that each agency kind of manages their own things. Um, the General Services Administration, who we work for, you know, they do things like rent all the federal buildings and deal with acquisition for the, you know, which is buying things um, for all the different federal agencies. But there really wasn't wasn't much there in terms of kind of uh, development help, you know, for, for these agencies and also, you know, platforms and things for them to be able to ship better software. Yeah. And speaking of the platforms, I do want to talk about cloud.gov. Can you explain what cloud.gov is and we can get into a discussion of the technology stack that ATNF has built? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, cloud.gov is a hosting platform for and by the federal government. So it is... Um, running Cloud Foundry, which is a open source platform as a service. And on top of that, we're able to, or, or we're, we're focusing on doing a lot of things around compliance. So making sure that it's easy for federal agencies to pay for and use it and be able to get through their compliance processes you know, quickly and make sure that they can run software securely. Right. So so government agencies, for those who don't know, can be extremely risk averse and operating within a government often involves compliance because you kind of want you have to adhere to those risk averse. I mean, that risk aversion is there for for good reason, for for legacy reason. How how does that compliance affect the type of software you're building? How does it affect the speed at which 18F can operate? Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, I, I think there's a couple things that lead to having like such a compliance heavy environment. The risk aversion is one of them. You know, if you're at a startup and you you fail, you know, you might you might be in the news, but like no one really cares, right? Um, unless you have like shareholders, maybe. Uh, within the federal government, if you screw something up, um, you make the front page of the Washington Post and get called in front of Congress. Right. So it's very, very high stakes. And so, you know, I see like uh, compliance, which is all these, you know, sort of sort of rules that you have to go through to launch uh, or operate software is, you know, sort of the best effort way to mitigate that. You know, I think it can be better in a lot of ways, but that's where it sort of comes from. Um, so trying to launch software in government, you know, it's sort of gated um, before you sort of make it publicly available by a process called like authority to operate. And that's, that's a lot of what we're trying to uh, reduce the, the burden um, of getting through that kind of gate. So the advantage of deploying, of having your own cloud, if you're a company uh, is kind of, you can give more liberation to the software developers and the independent teams in your organization, because if they need to spin up some machines, they need to run some kind of experiment, they need to launch an application, they can just say, hey, we just allocate these machines as a service. So explain how that sense of liberation has affected software development in the federal government, or, or at the at least at the 18F level. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's huge. Well, you know, outside of 18F, um, you know, at places that don't have access to, you know, infrastructure directly and, you know, maybe don't have the expertise, they have to get a contract to get a data center or, you know, space in a data center. They have to contract to get developers to build the application. They have to get a contract to 
deploy that application and operate that application. Um, and all of these, you know, they, they may lump some of those together, but each of those is a, you know, multi-month bidding process. And then you have to, um, you know, compete those. And, and I think there are a lot of, you know, kind of problems with that, that process where you're not able to necessarily um, award the contracts to the, you know, people who are best suited to do the job. Um, and so it's a very, very long process and very expensive process to kind of launch anything. And so being able to have kind of on-demand infrastructure hugely changes that, um, especially using something like a platform because you can give a lot of that power to the developers. So you cut out a lot of that operating burden, you know, cause we're able to do so that in a sort of central way. What is the, what's the cloud service provider you're using underneath cloud foundry? Uh, so we're running um, in AWS, and we're actually in the process. Uh, we're just finishing up moving into uh, GovCloud, which is different than cloud.gov. <laughs> right. Is GovCloud the, the, the data center that Amazon built specifically for government applications? Yeah, exactly. So um, it is AWS. You know, it has m- most of the AWS services um, that you know of, like, you know, EC2 and S3 and things like that. Um, but they do a lot to uh, kind of meet the compliance needs. So, you know, I think it's maybe, you know, I think like the servers are only accessible by, you know, people with citizenship or visas or something like that. Basically, they put a lot of like protections in that are needed for like especially, you know, sensitive uh, data that government might have. Okay, and so why did you use so so you you have these these cloud servers on running in Amazon's GovCloud data center? Why did you build an additional platform on top of that using Cloud Foundry? Yeah, so uh, I don't know if you've ever you know tried to set up a server from scratch, but it's kind of a pain. Um, you know, even even with virtualization, you're still given you know a Linux box, and you have to configure it. You have to um, install security patches you have to make sure that you know only the right ports are accessible etc um it's really a nuisance and you know within 18f uh alone we were finding that you know that's what that's what we were doing when we first started and it was a lot of overhead and there's a lot of um you know kind of dependence on our very small operations team uh to you know sort of provide that expertise just to get a you know, new environment running for for an application uh, with a platform as a service. The developer can just say like, push this app to a new to new environment, and it just kind of works. So it 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 kind of democratizes that uh, you know expertise in the sense that developers are able to kind of serve their own needs better. Certainly, of course, Amazon also has its own platform as a service products. Why did you choose to layer Cloud Foundry on top of the Amazon infrastructure instead of using Amazon's platform as a service products? Yeah, so we we did evaluate a lot of uh, options at the time, both um, you know sort of commercial offerings and uh, and open source ones, and you know with a with a sort of all in one platform, you get. Uh, vendor independence is one big thing. So with Cloud Foundry, they have different sort of adapters um, that the end user doesn't, for the most part, doesn't have to even be aware of what the underlying environment is. So, 
you know, if you are running directly in Amazon, that's going to be a big change going from, you know, using AMIs in, uh, in one place to using, you know, Azure, um, you know, whatever their, their equivalent is of machine images. And, and so you, you build up a lot around, um, you know, vendor dependence. And I think that's been a huge problem for government in the past. So being able to have that flexibility is huge. Um, it also does things like allow us to offer, you know, services that Amazon doesn't. So, um, for example, if we wanted to offer like a couch DB service, you know, just say, um, we could cloud foundry allows you to create that sort of abstraction where you say, you know, here's how to create a new couch DB instance. And you can just sort of provide that as like a, they call it the marketplace, you know, and you can create add-ons in that way that are uh, custom. So we're able to do sort of interesting things there um, around offering customer things. It sounds like the layer of Cloud Foundry gives you multi-cloud ability, and it also reduces the switching cost in case you wanted to change the core infrastructure over to Google or Amazon or DigitalOcean in the future. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, similarly, um, you know, there's there's vendor independence for cloud.gov itself. So, you know, we can, for example, move from Amazon uh, East, where we are now, to GovCloud. And the tenants, for the most part, you know, they'll have to do some manual some manual work, but they won't have to do many, much changing to the application. Also, using an open source uh platform which is very popular gives independence to those applications so if an application can run in cloud.gov it can run with almost no extra effort in any of the commercial providers that run cloud foundry so one thing i'm curious about is if if govcloud the amazon data center uh offering for governments that serves these compliance things so it can't run, they can't have certain platform features because they would violate compliance. But couldn't you theoretically build any of those things on top of your Cloud Foundry, uh, your gov, your cloud.gov layer? Like, couldn't you potentially violate those compliance issues at the higher level? So it's not so much that like certain technologies can't be used. It's a lot around like, who can access the servers, how are deployments managed. Um, yeah, a lot of it is around like data integrity and, and security. So um, because we're running Cloud Foundry in those, you know, or, or we're moving to running Cloud Foundry sort of in those walls, we're able to, you know, add sort of any offerings that we want. And yes, of course, you could do this um, at the, you know, sort of infrastructure layer and, and kind of build your own abstractions there. But using a sort of unified platform provides a really nice, like, consistent experience for users. Sure. Okay, so I'm kind of curious about the the contra- contractual bidding process because so Amazon obviously won this contract, or I'm not sure if you guys chose them or or if you were evaluating Amazon and Google and Azure and you just decided on Amazon. Like, what what was that process like? How did you come to the conclusion that Amazon was what you were going to be running on? Yeah, so this happened before I, I got to 18 apps, so I can't speak too much to it. But for you know purchases like that, um, a lot of what the government has to do is, you know, it's very hard for the government to pay sort of usage fees. So um, it works in this sort of interesting way where you go through a third party, 
and you're essentially allocating a large amount of money to buy this software for a certain amount of time. So even though Amazon charges by usage, we basically have a, you know this large fund like that we awarded with this contract as a sort of like upper limit, right? So like we dedicated a certain amount of money. The the government can't. Um, there are laws against like committing the government to a sort of indefinite amount, and so it has to work in this you know seemingly backwards way where you know you you set aside like a fixed amount of money to use a piece of software that's charged by usage. Um, but as to why Amazon was chosen versus something else, I can't speak too much to that. Hmm. Okay, so you, do, do you have any idea like when the bidding process would reopen, or it's just not your wheelhouse? You know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm actually not sure about that. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, so, it's, so the interesting thing about 18F is that we have you know not only developers and designers, we actually have a whole division uh, dedicated to acquisition. So not only buying you know software for ourselves, be it you know infrastructure, be it you know licenses for desktop software, that kind of thing, but um, you know, this is that's, like, that's known as procurement, right? Right. So procurement or acquisition. Yeah. So, um, you know, not only are we doing those sort of, you know, buys for ourselves, we are doing a lot of work with outside agencies to do what are called like, you know, ghost RFPs. So like ghost writing a request for proposal, basically, you know, writing up their requirements so that they get better software and helping, you know, kind of design better ways to for other agencies to buy software so we're kind of attacking the like government's you know it challenge from multiple angles you know of trying to do better better development offering better platforms but also you know we don't we aren't trying to cut out uh, private industry by any means and so we're also trying to make it easier to buy better software and better you know uh, hire better vendors okay so this this vendor and uh, cloud competitive contract com- competition discussion is interesting, but we should talk some about like the actual usage. So let's say I'm a developer at 18F yeah. and I want to spin up a server. I've got an application I want to deploy. Maybe it's for the IRS. Maybe it's for um, the transportation department or something. So how do I spin up a server and deploy an application to cloud.gov? How does it differ from how I might do that if I'm at a company that has its own cloud. Yeah, so I mean, we're using essentially off-the-shelf Cloud Foundry. Um, you know, the the customization is in sort of things built around it, but um, using cloud.gov is just like using any other Cloud Foundry provider from the developer's perspective. So um, there's a command line tool, and that provides pretty much everything that the developer would need in terms of um, deployment. So you know, you're able to to basically push local files and it uses um, something derived from like Heroku's build pack uh, system where you know you'll have a, a build pack for different frameworks and different languages and they'll try and make a sort of best guess about what framework or language is being used run the appropriate uh, installation commands things like that install dependencies um, and then start up the server but really all the developer needs to do is say you know cf push and it's a really yeah it's a really impressive uh system and it's it's quite seamless and you're able to do things like you know configuration in 
configuration as code in the sense that you can you know specify okay i want two hosts running and i want it at this domain and i want these services connected and i want these environment variables set and things like that and you can check all that into uh like yaml files in your repository and so you're able to you know get sort of reproducibility in that way let's walk through uh an example of how an application got created in in 18f like just the because pro- I think listeners may not understand this process, they may not know, they may be confused. Like, describe the process of 18F interacting with some other government organization. The other government organization says, "Hey, we need X built." 18F starts designing it, starts specking it out, starts working with software engineers and designers and project managers. Uh, and take me through that process from the beginning to end, from just a high level. Yeah, um, I think you hit a lot of the high level points. Um, so we, you know, act maybe like there's a, maybe there's an example of a specific application sure, yeah. that you recently built. Yeah. So I mean, agencies, you know, as I mentioned, agencies, you know, come to us for work. We can't force anyone to do anything really. Um, so let's say the Federal Election Commission might approach us and say, "We want, you know, our website rebuilt, uh, and we want." Um, you know, maybe they just say that. Uh, we have an intake process where we help them kind of better articulate what their needs actually are, um, and understand their you know help them understand their budget and what sort of timeline that they might have, um, what sort of staff they might need to achieve that. You know, if there are any special skills, uh, etc. And so after that process, there's a you know uh, basically a contract signed. We call it an interagency agreement um, that basically you know, dedicates money for this, uh, for this project from their budget. We then, you know, staff up a project and that'll often involve, uh, what we call like a discovery sprint, uh, to kick it off. And that will be, you know, sort of driven by, uh, user experience folks, um, but have, you know, the engineers and the product, product people and everything involved to, you know, even better understand the problem. So, you know, interviewing, Either if it's replacing something existing, you know, interviewing current users or current operators, uh, if it's you know doesn't exist yet, if it's a greenfield project, you know, they'll talk to people who they think will be using the, using the project and understand their needs. Um, oh, from so there, I think, yeah, I think I think one example of this that's interesting. I, I read about this on the 18F blog. Is this app recently 18F helped build that was like a college scorecard? This is a project that allows students and parents to make more informed choices about what college to go to. And this is this is a perfect example of an app that might easily get biases baked into it or pro- problems if, if it were developed by the private sector. So it's really like kind of the perfect example of, uh, of an application that would make sense for the government to build. Explain how the development of the college scorecard app went, because I think that that would help uh, epitomize some of the some of the the processes that you're discussing. Yeah, so um, you know, I, I wasn't directly involved in that project, but um, you know, for those who don't know, it's a website offered by the Department of Education to provide basically better uh, provide students and families with better data to make informed decisions about college. So it will do things like tell you, you know, what is the average income for this degree uh, or this this major from this college, you know, five years, 10 years uh, out. Um, what are the average, 
you know, so, sort of student loan burden or what's, what's the sort of debt that people have uh, coming out of this college. Um, and so where, you know, there are certainly a lot of private uh, offerings in terms of, you know, how to make decisions about college, the government has a sort of unique perspective and a, u- a unique opportunity to provide a lot of the data that the government collects. So it uses things like IRS data, it uses things like, um, you know, the Department of Education data, of course, um, and then makes that all available. So there's a tool to not only browse the data, but you can also download the raw data sets and use the API. So I think um, a lot of those even private offerings can now be improved because they have better access to you know the underlying data. And so it's a sort of win-win for everyone, I think. Right. Yeah, totally. So what, what was a, the most recent project that you have worked on that you helped launch? Yeah, so I've been on um, cloud.gov for uh, like four-ish months. Um, the project I worked on before that uh, for my first year at 18F was uh, called Communicart or C2. And that was a project to help purchase workflows in government. So if you want to buy a stapler uh, in government, you have to get like two to six signatures. <laughs> Uh, which is yeah. So, and this is for you know what, what are called like small purchases, so um, under thirty five hundred dollars. So that process was all based in paper and you know phone calls um, beforehand. And you know the tricky thing is that for for those kinds of purchases, you need to keep record of all of those, not only the transactions but also the authorizations for three years. Um, past when the purchase is made. And so it was this really difficult like bookkeeping problem, you know, for individuals, for people who are like doing maintenance on buildings or whatever, you know, they, they don't want to have to worry about this stuff. Um, and then it was also difficult for auditing because, you know, the information was scattered and, you know, the person might not work there anymore and the person, you know, may not remember, you know, three years, three years ago who they called. Was this being done in like spreadsheets and Oracle things before? Or? Not even. That, that's, that's what I'm saying. It was like people would, you know, dig up, have to dig up old emails and, you know, probably look at like oh, phone God. records and, you know, write things down from memory. Yeah, it was like that would have been that would have been a good start. Um, so the idea was to basically have a central you know, system for doing these kind of purchase approval workflows and keep all the information in one place so that not only is it more efficient for the people making the purchases and the people approving the purchases, you know, that they can see, for example, what are all the outstanding uh, purchases that are made or um, even to answer basic questions like how much money is my department spending, um, you know, this quarter, you know, those kinds of things. So this is what I love about 18F because the I think the some of the the maybe the uh, I don't want to say disdain, but that's the only word that's coming to mind that you know Silicon Valley people might have for government is like they're like oh they don't have these processes in place they don't have the right kinds of software that get things done and eighteen F is solving that exact problem it's greasing the wheels in these places where you can't even imagine that these types of you know, kind of slow down would occur, but the, you know, this type of like, yeah, you have to do bookkeeping to uh, acquire a stapler. Like this type of process is, it has it, the auditing processes is in place for a reason. And it's, it's just unfortunate that the way that things have developed, you know, there's a lots of manual processes and 
that's that's the beauty of 18F is it is this this kind of like put grease in all these little gears that that are the government bureaucratic machine and over time it you just you're going to get lots of speed up especially because it sounds like I mean that type of pro- that type of application you're describing you know it's uh obviously it's has some complexities um but it sounds like the type of thing that it's it's not like you're going to need like a continuous like monitoring and DevOps team uh, assigned to it to handle the outages and keep 24-hour uptime and everything. It's just like this simple application that you write it once and it's kind of like solves this problem uh, forever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, coming, you know, into government, it was really surprising that, um, you know, the, the problems really aren't technical. Like even that app that I'm describing, which, you know, has some like business logic and sort of like different rules for how things get, how requests get routed and things like that. Like it's a rails app. Like it's not like, we're not talking like a really complicated thing here. Um, and most of the projects that we build are, you know, we do a lot of static sites actually. Um, so like the technology is not the challenge. Um, and I, I think that was, that was something that's really surprising to me and really surprising to a lot of people coming in is that, you know, it's really, how do you navigate the bureaucracy? How do you help, people in government be comfortable with things like working in the open or using open source or um yeah like having their data you know made available that kind of thing um so you know even for developers you know i think you you have to have and also build a lot of you know sort of empathy for the other people who are working in government who want to do good work but yeah as you were saying are just kind of mired down in this um you know, kind of, kind of layers and layers of regulations that that make it really difficult to work efficiently and effectively. And one of the things about technology that's interesting is like when you get certain behaviors baked into how you act, it's it's really hard to see another way. And so one example of this is like I think about podcasts, for example. Like my workflow for downloading new podcasts, I listen to tons of podcasts, uh, and the workflow is so weird because it's this weird legacy thing that's been around for like 10 or 12 years, but hasn't really advanced very much. It's like, you have to open this podcast player. You have to keep like, I don't know, tons of uh, 20, 20 gigabytes of podcasts on your, on your phone. And it's like, does this really make a whole lot of sense? And the answer is probably no, but it's, you know, it's easy to to not have that frame of reference because you've just been dealing with this infrastructure for so long. And I imagine that there are a lot of people in government who are just so used to it, they don't, they're kind of like maybe blind to these uh, efficiencies that could be, could be created. And then when 18F unlocks it, it's just, you just get, just get huge returns in productivity. Um, yeah. I think that's a, you know, that's an interesting advantage to having the sort of consulting model, right? Of we are coming in from the outside, you know, not only people coming from outside of government to 18F, but also, you know, 18F not, you know, being stationed in any of the agencies that we're working with, right? And so, you know, we're coming in with sort of fresh perspective. At the same time, you know, there's a lot of domain expertise and there's a lot to be learned from the people in those agencies um, who want to, you know, work better. Um, they just don't have the re- they just don't have the resources to do so, and so that sort of like marrying and and us kind of being humble and like listening um, to what we can learn from them, you know, I think results in much better products and we're able to bring you know the technology expertise and things like that. Um, so, yeah, but yeah, it's definitely a mix. 
One thing you mentioned was like the static site. Like there's lots of people in the government, lots of organizations in the government that could just use a static site, a static website. And you built this, 18F helped build this platform called the Federalist platform, which just helps helps people launch static websites. So could you talk a bit about this platform and explain why you built your own kind of, it sounds kind of like a just publishing tool. Why couldn't you just use WordPress? Yeah, so I mean, there um, are a ton of uh, government websites that use uh, Drupal and WordPress are two very you know popular options. And those are definitely out there and you can definitely do that. And actually GSA, you know, our agency, offers a uh, kind of like WordPress, you know, it's not a one-click WordPress solution, but it's essentially it's essentially that, um, you know, similar to the, to the kinds of things you'd get with like GoDaddy or, you know, these uh, commercial providers, but offered by the government. Um, you know, we saw an opportunity for making that even simpler, right? In that there's no database, there's no, you know, running code. Um, you're never going to have a performance problems or things like that. Um, you know, and so we're able to offer, you know, that hosting um, and that sort of build process for static sites, but also a, you know, user-friendly editor that allows them to, you know, just focus on editing content and not have to worry about, you know, design or layout, that kind of thing. Right. So, so WordPress is even heavier than what you need to deliver such, uh, you know, what these, what these companies, what these, uh, different organizations within the government actually need. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think WordPress is great in a lot of cases, but you know, yeah, this is, this is another option that, you know, requires even less like operational sort of focus than, uh, than WordPress might. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of the operational, side of things. You gave a talk at OSCON, and one of the things that you discussed was how difficult it is to find DevOps people who can work in government. Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's just a conflation of things that lead to it being hard to get DevOps people hired at 18F. Can you explain that process? Explain why, I mean, obviously you have your own cloud, so DevOps is important, but explain why it's so hard to hire people. Why, uh, why DevOps is so important for 18F? Yeah. So really the problems are not, are not specific to DevOps though. I think, um, you know, the, dev, the demand for DevOps in the industry is high so that you know, we're, we're competing with tech with tech companies or, or other organizations, um, so that makes it you know hard, equally hard as everyone else. Um, but you know, hiring in governments, especially for engineers, is especially is difficult because we have you know a much longer kind of turnaround time uh, for hiring than um, you know a private company would. So we are using a, a sort of specialist hiring authority um, that allows us to hire much quicker than, you know, than a lot of other parts of government. Um, you know, what's some trade-offs so that we have a, a maximum term length of two years that's renewable to four years. Um, but even that takes the average hiring, which is, you know, nine to 12 months for the rest of government. So tell me some about how the teams at 18F are structured. How does does project management, project flow work? How does the, like once an application is up, how does the maintenance go? Just kind of give me an idea for how teams work. 
Sure. So uh, it can have structured um, as what we call chapters and what we call business units. So chapters are basically you know division by skill. So there's engineering, there's design, there's product, uh, there's uh, acquisition, and then there's um, uh, change strategists. So essentially, people who you know do digital strategy. Um, on the business unit side, we have uh, custom partner solutions, which are things that we are you know, building custom for an agency and then, you know, handing off to them ideally. Uh, we have transformation, which again is that sort of strategy strategy kind of work. We have products and platforms. Uh, we have acquisition on that side also. Um, and then uh, what we call learn, which is essentially like training resources. So HNF is sort of, you know, matrixed in the sense that you know, within engineering, we have teams that are, you know, supervisories. So, you know, I, I meet with, you know, the, the five or six engineers on my team uh, you know, every two weeks or so and, you know, do check-ins and see how things are going. But I'm not necessarily working with them every day. So people from engineering and people from design are, you know, sort of grouped together on the different project teams. And, you know, so a project team will last for one to 12 months, let's say, um, on a given project and most people are just on one at a time. And so, yeah. So the, the sort of projects come in through those different business units and then are staffed from the different chapters. Um, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And how much of 18 F's software is open source? Uh, I'd say 98%. Um, we do have, uh, one big project that was uh, that we brought in before we kind of formalized our open source policy that they've been trying to get open source uh, basically since the beginning, um, but I've run into a lot of you know uh, yeah it's it's just hard to make it a priority I guess um, so that's something that that's being pushed for but really almost everything we do is in the open I barely ever do anything in private repositories. So how did you overcome the the or how how does how does ATF overcome the kind of like notion that oh if it's open source maybe there's uh, you know exposed security risks or something like anybody in the open can see how these government tools are working and potentially have security breaches um, was is that a complex discussion to have with you know people who may not be well versed in how open source works. Yeah, this is something I've been thinking about. Um, you know, there really is a lot of like fear and uncertainty um, from. I mean, it's like the same thing yeah. about the cloud. Like, yeah, oh, absolutely. we're afraid to move into the cloud because it's security risks. When in actuality, uh, it's kind of counterintuitive, but there are fewer security risks if you're in the cloud. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is hearing their concerns, you know, not having a sort of knee jerk reaction and kind of making them feel making the people you're working with feel ignored um but i think we do you know have good answers for and i'm hoping we can you know sort of write down good answers for uh, a lot of these things so for example like security of open source software yes you can see vulnerabilities but there are also a lot more people looking at it to find and fix security vulnerabilities or you know you have that possibility when the code is out in the open um and so the we also have like some very good uh, you know some very good things that we can cite you know to support this. Uh, for example, a memo from the Department of Defense in 2009, I believe, saying that you know closed source is not inherently more secure, um, and that uh, 
you know, security by obscurity is not uh, a valid you know, argument. And so we're able to cite things like that. And, you know, when the DOD, the Department of Defense, says something around security, people tend to listen. And so, um, you know, I, I think a lot of it is kind of kind of building up, you know, precedent and saying, you know, here, look at all the places it's been used in government uh, very effectively and, you know, pure agencies that are in support of it and, and whatever. And I think a, a lot of it, again, is just the fear of, you know, kind of being a first mover and, you know, not wanting to take on that risk. But if they see that other people have taken on this risk and, you know, done fine, it's, you know, that's often enough. When you have this, this huge library of open source software that the government can use, it almost seems like, I mean, could, could other governments potentially just like fork, fork 18F and like, start you know using it for their own internal processes because i imagine like everybody every government needs uh, an internal auditing process to track who bought a stapler right yeah i mean you know the more we talk to other governments the more we realize how not unique uh these problems are so yeah i mean we have uh so cloud.gov for example um uh the digital transformation office in australia is looking to do something very similar and we sort of went point by point of like okay well here's the special thing that we built for cloud.gov because compliance and they're like oh yeah yeah we have we need that too and then okay here's this another thing that we need for you know security reasons they're like yeah yeah we need that too and so it's really um there's a lot of opportunity there uh for reuse and i think the better that we're able to you know document things and automate automate things um and make them easy to stand up, the more reuse we're going to get and the more able to, you know, in the future, uh, collaborate. Um, and so there are a few good examples of HNF projects that other governments are using. Um, one being an analytics dash, uh, sort of public facing analytics dashboard. Uh, so the one we built is analytics.usa.gov, but, um, which is a pretty cool site, by the way, I urge listeners to check that out. Yeah. But that's being used, you know, that got sort of, sort of forked and stood up by uh, the city of Philadelphia, I think like Anaheim, maybe Anchorage, like a bunch of cities. And I I think Norway, uh, you know, forked one of our, the government in Norway forked one of our sites and, and, you know, stood it up. And so there's, I think there is a lot of opportunity for reuse. And so I hope, you know, as we're building projects going forward, we have that sort of reuse in mind and think about, you know, how easy would this be to customize and can we, you know, break it out into, you know, modules that that would make it easy to reassemble and not, you know, be very US government specific. What is the I you know I'm very curious about your perspective on the ethos of people who join 18F because these are like super experienced, super talented technologists that choose to go to government when they could go to work at anywhere in Silicon Valley. They could go to Uber, they could go to insert hot startup name here. What is driving the people who go to 18F to work at this place where you don't get, as far as I know, I don't think you get stock options. You know, the salary (laughs) may not be super competitive with like a Google or a Facebook. What is the ethos of the people that are joining 18F? Yeah, I'm not holding out for the uh, U.S. government IPO. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, there's 
I think a real unique offering of, you know, startups, you know, obviously you can get amazing benefits, you can get great pay, you can get really flexible work. Um, working in the, in the government, you get a sort of unique opportunity to have enormous impact for change um, and at a place that desperately needs it. And so, you know, because things are so, you know, bad technology-wise in government, um, every little thing you do is like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, <laughs> this is so much better than what we had before. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's just a really rewarding thing. And I think we get... So you're saying 18F is a bunch of mission-driven millennial types? Uh, I didn't say the last part. So, we actually, <laughs> so no, we actually have a huge range of people and uh, a large number of people at 18F have families. Um, you know, GSA... Uh, our you know parent agency is actually very. So, so I, did, very I didn't mean that. As, uh, I didn't mean that as a like condemnatory statement, by the way. I meant that as no, very much like a okay. Yeah, no, I think it's a misconception of like we're all a bunch of like Silicon Valley like twenty year olds. Like that's not the case at all. I'm actually you know on the younger side of eighteen F that uh, I'm late twenties. Okay, so, millennials at heart. Sarah, Sarah yeah. Allen, Sarah Allen, obviously not a millennial, but she very much had an ethos that I think I see reflected in some of the uh, millennial types that I see these days, like what, where you work, what the mission of what you are doing, the higher level mission is, is very important. I think it has something to do with the fact that, you know, we've gotten to the point where the best thing that a human can possibly buy is a smartphone and that only costs 500 to $600. So beyond that, where is your money going to get, take you? So it becomes much more important about like, where are you going to work? What are, what are those What are those eight to ten hours of your day consisting of? Yeah, and I mean, I think there's um, also a unique opportunity for eighteen at eighteen F of you know there are a lot of nonprofits, there are a lot of uh, other governments that need you know kind of technology and design expertise, but you know eighteen F has a sort of critical mass of people you know started by a bunch of people that are super talented and that just sort of brought in wanted brought in more people that wanted to work with you know that caliber of person um so we actually have you know a a shockingly like talented team and and sort of experienced team and that you know i have people that i you know manage technically that have run engineering teams before right and i like don't know what i'm doing so (laughs) you know it's like people are not there to you know climb the ladder necessarily they're not there to you know take home a big paycheck though i think our our salaries are you know for the most part competitive um you know it is people that want a supportive job want a you know opportunity to make a big difference and yeah are patient well and it's the unique the unique situation of your downside risk is protected because it's not like a startup where you're you're potentially like going to run out of money but also you have this is totally unique, totally un you know untapped ground in terms of what kinds of engineering things you can do. It's totally new. Yeah. So how how big can eighteen F get, or what is the larger picture? I, I don't remember exactly how eighteen F fits into the GSA and and the just the the technological revolution that's happening at the government. But how big can this movement? within government get or where is it going just the technologization of government sure so you know hnf is at 185 people and we are two years old so we've been growing very very fast um i think 
you know, we have plans to grow to something like 215, um, you know, long term. Uh, I don't think that we'll just continue growing indefinitely. You know, I think there's there's a certain, you know, over a certain size, we could we could risk becoming like, uh, you know, not not as agile that kind of thing. Um, so what I'm optimistic for is that. You know, with uh, the U.S. Digital Service, which is our sort of uh, sister team in the White House, that they're actually one of their big projects is standing up digital teams in agencies. So where we are, you know, somewhat independent and you know able to work with a lot of different agencies, you know, on a sort of uh, one-off basis, having teams that are actually, you know, well uh, well versed and well aware of. You know, the problems specific to veterans, or the problems specific to education, or the part, uh, problems specific to you know housing or whatever. Um, having you know technologists and designers in those agencies will allow them to you know have much better sort of long term you know IT improvement, and you know that we can continue to exist to offer things like the shared services or offer you know expertise uh, in a specific area where they might not have it or to do to do prototyping or what have you is, so is there, a, is there a potential future where cloud.gov could get opened up to public use like i i'm a random developer in the united states i'm like i want to contribute to government and i want to deploy an application i'm like I, maybe i make it open source and then i deploy it on cloud.gov servers is that a possibility uh, probably not. I mean, we definitely, definitely, definitely want uh, contributors to our applications, and you know, we are we're doing a lot of thinking about how to make things easier to contribute to and more reusable, um, so that we can have collaboration with outside entities. I don't think like direct deployment to cloud.gov is a possibility. Um, there's restrictions around, um, you know, that you have to be a government employee to, you know. De- deployed directly to a like .gov domain, for example. Um, and so we wouldn't want any just anyone to be able to do that. Um, but I do hope that we're able to, you know, provide better kind of facilities and mechanisms for people to contribute and what, what, you know, to get us involvement like that. Would it make sense for the government, like as the government builds up more technical inclination? Would it make sense for the government to deploy like its own email server? Like you've got, you know, you've got Gmail, but it's it's actually it's the government. It, you know, I can see that making sense. Or like a government spam detection program. Are these, you know, could you could you potentially see a government uh, cr- like creating these things that have historically been done by the private sector? Um, in some areas, right? Like we're not we're not trying to replace all of these private offerings. Um, you know, we didn't want to run our own data center. You know, we want to use an off-the-shelf like data center or, or uh, you know, the virtualization kind of level. Um, but we're able to offer things that are specific to government on top of that. You know, so I think having having that layer of abstraction where you can then use vendors. Uh, from the outside underneath and have that sort of independence is really appealing. And so, you know, GSA does actually offer things like, um, uh, you know, Google apps for governments. I think they, they do the reselling if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but you know, we do use, yeah, we use Google apps and we use, um, you know, a lot of commercial tools. And I, I, I don't think, and I don't necessarily want that to change. Um, but having a having a 
broader array of offerings allows you know more flexibility for agencies and so you know they're able to if they you know have some sort of compliance need that they uh want to put on top of email that you know if there were an email offering uh from gsa you know that they could compare that against the the sort of uh commercial providers and you know yeah, just have better options. You know, I think I think sure. more options are always better for the consumer. The consumer in this case is government. Sure. Okay. So as we're beginning to close off, I guess I I should I want to ask one or two more things about uh, technical stuff. So uh, you know you're running on Amazon Cloud Foundry sitting between or Cloud Foundry sitting on top. Is there? Do you guys use containers? Is there any container management system that you're using? Yeah. So uh, Cloud Foundry actually uses a container system that I think predates Docker. Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, internally, but for better or worse, that's sort of um, the, the developer is not even aware of that. So when you deploy it, it's built into a uh, an image, and then that's what's run on the different um, on the different you know sort of runners in Cloud Foundry. Uh, they did recently add Docker support, and that's something that we are looking to add this year. Um, you know, there's a lot of sort of compliance uh, complexities there in that with doing things at the sort of build pack level in the sense where we're providing, you know, the version of Ruby and we're providing, you know, open SSL and whatever, um, that if there's a security patch, we can deploy that sort of centrally, uh, you know, from, from the cloud, cloud outside and all apps benefit from that. When you have containers, you sort of lose uh, some of that benefit and that, you know, I don't know what's running inside your container. And um, it's it's then sort of the developer's responsibility to do those upgrades. So there's some downsides there. Um, it is something we want to support. We just have to figure out some things like that. Um, so, you know, doing security scanning of, of containers is, you know, something we're going to be looking into, that kind of thing. But we are we are using Doc, we are using Docker uh, for development on a lot of projects. We're using it um, for services that are attached to cloud.gov. Uh, we're using it heavily in Concourse, which is like the CI, uh, the continuous integration system we use for cloud.gov. Um, that's all that's all based around containers. So it is definitely being used uh, around mm-hmm. ATDF. So I guess just to close off, what is the future vision? What are the things that you're aligned around? right now what are you working on right now at 18f you specifically yeah so uh cloud.gov is my project and so um we are focusing on getting fedramp authorization so you know this is more compliance fun where uh you know fedramp is essentially a stamp that says you know this is cleared by this sort of like central authority um as being you know a secure system and that they you know checked all the boxes uh, of doing things that they need to do to, you know, meet the the government wide security requirements, or, or at least the FedRAMP specified uh, security requirements, and a lot of that is you know moving to GovCloud is is one of those things, um, being a sort of approved system, approved underlying system for that. Um, I'm also doing a lot of work on tooling around like security and compliance. So, for example, when you're launching software in the government, you have to write up a lot of documentation uh, saying like, you know, here's the architecture of the system, here's why, you know, here's how we're taking care of user management if that's applicable, here's how we're taking care of, you know, network security if that's applicable. But having things like Amazon and Cloud Foundry, you know, and then the things we're building around Cloud Foundry takes care of a lot of, of, a lot of those requirements. 
And so uh, I'm working on a tool called Compliance Masonry that allows you to essentially do documentation like you would build software packages. So you're able to inherit um, from different you know, underlying packages. So saying I'm using Rails, okay, that takes care of CSRF protection. And I'm using uh, Amazon, so that takes care of making sure that you have a fire hydrant next to your server. You know, that's like <laughs> that's like the kind of things that launching a static website you shouldn't have to worry about. But at that the is moment, an actual you, compliance issue. That's a, that's a, that's a literally a, one of the one of the uh, rules. <laughs> um, but the developers shouldn't have to care about that. They should just have to know. Okay, what are the specific requirements for my application, and you know, what are the you know sort of uh, remaining rules that I have to take care of at my level, you know, given I'm using all these components. And so, so, so I got building ask, up documentation. Why do you need a fire hydrant next to your server? Uh, in case it catches on fire, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, data integrity is a very big thing in government. So, you know, an entire data center burning down is uh, not a great thing. Okay. So, yeah. So it's things like that, you know, for better or worse, they're, they're the requirements. And so, you know, at the very least, we want to make it as easy as possible for systems to be built uh, on top of it. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Well, Aiden, uh, thanks for a super interesting conversation. I am a huge fan of 18F. I think you guys are doing awesome work. And um, I don't know, anytime you, you want to come back on the show, if you got an announcement or you want to discuss something, uh, feel free to come back on. I'd love to have you. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, Aiden.